as my grandpa always used to say, you know what the golden rule is? He who has the gold makes the rules. That's right, everyone. You heard his voice. I've heard that voice for most of my life, actually, because we grew up living in Colorado together back in the day. But Jonathan Vodders joins us today on Bobby and Yen's. Okay, everyone, as promised, we have the general manager of EF Education, Easy Post, Mr. Jonathan Vodders, joining us today on Bobby and Yen's. Jonathan, how's it going, buddy? Well, it's, you know, it's going. Uh, each each day in the life of a general manager is a, is a new adventure. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's going. It's always a challenge. Well, listen, I don't think I, I know I have never... And I probably will never start a podcast with this next question, but you sent me a video uh, 30 minutes ago, 45 minutes ago, <laughs> and, and you were lifting weights. And Jonathan, I've known you since what, we were like young juniors. And I was thinking about texting you back and saying, you know, oh, wow, you're uh, deadlifting your, your body weight. Back when I knew you, the bar without any weight on it was your body weight. So yeah, tell me a little bit about what you're doing to stay fit yeah, because yeah, that yeah. No, that I'm, looked like I'm, a lot of weight on that I'm bar. I'm deadlifting about yeah, like 300, 315 right now. Um, you know, I just, it's, well, I'll tell you what, like I like to sort of, you know, like any of us as competitive athletes that we used to be, right? You like to compete against yourself, but I don't do it with cycling anymore because, you know, like all my buddies are like, hey, you want to go to Lookout Mountain and try to break your, uh, you know, your Strava record up Lookout Mountain? And I'm like, my PR up Lookout Mountain is like, I don't, you know, I mean, I think it's the fastest time ever ridden up Lookout Mountain, right? I don't know. Maybe Tommy D broke it. I have no idea. But anyway, like I'm never coming close to that. Like if if I could do double my fastest time up Lookout Mountain now, I would be a hero. So... I just started looking for other sports that I could be like, well, I could break my record in that. Like, you know, bench press. When I started weightlifting, I was bench pressing 95 pounds. You know, I'm like, I can definitely do better than that. So it's like, you know, it, it gives me a new challenge. And it's like something that I can actually be better at than I was last year or the year before that. Whereas with cycling, I, you know, I'm, I'm never getting any better than I was when I was, you know, 28. So that's for sure. Those days are gone, my friend. Yeah, I mean, it sounds I do like some, you got like, a good plan. Running races, and I, you know, I'm like you when you were young, you were a really good skier. I only got into skiing in my mid 30s, and so like now, you know, I, th I think it's like the coolest thing ever when when I can get down like a double diamond mogul run. You know, that that and then I feel like a total hero. Whereas, you know, a lot of people that would be nothing. But you know, like I said, like to me, I'm never, I'm not, I'm not going to break any more Strava records on a bike. So might as well, might as well try something else. Jonathan, actually, you're not only a general manager, you have yeah. been a teammate of us, right? Do you sometimes still look back at the disco? Wow, that was fun. Because uh, I actually, I do sometimes. And um, a memory that always sticks out is the team time trial yeah, in the that. Tour de France. Do you remember that? 
I still hold that as one of uh, my nicest uh, memories. Do you ever look back at these days and go, ah, it was good fun back then? Or you go, nah, I'm too busy just working my team. No, no, I definitely uh, look I don't back. Have time for that. Um, and, you know, and I would say that team time trial in the Tour de France, that's probably my favorite memory in, in cycling because one, there was no way we were supposed to win that day. We were supposed to get our asses kicked by Onse and Postal Service and God knows who else, right? And like, and I, I still remember coming through that first time check and looking up, going, "That said minus. Are we ahead? Are we? Are we winning this?" And I like I, anyway, but uh, you know, but I do have to kind of keep that part of you know looking back at my own career a little bit more private because uh, you know my job is to not look back; it's to look forward, and and so. You know, in in my private time, I definitely look back at that in pretty fond memories. But but publicly, you know, I'm I'm a, a lot more forward facing than uh, than you know than talking about the good old days. But I can talk about the good old days with you guys. <laughs> no one wants to hear uh, two fifty year olds and what you were two years younger yeah. than us, so you're probably like forty eight or forty nine. Talk about the the glory days, but. Um, you know, you have definitely had a team for a very, very, very long time. And we were talking about it before you came on. Um, are you one of the longest running teams? Yeah. Uh, I know that Movistar is, you know, far, far in front of pretty much everyone, I think. But are you guys one of those those teams that are, you know, yeah, the longest I mean, tenured sponsorship? We're the longest running American registered team ever. Um, whether it's continental, whether it's, you know, whatever. Well, no, not continental, actually, but that's not pro. We're the longest running professional American team ever. Um, as far as like overall, I'm trying to think. Movistar would be ahead of us. Quick Step would be ahead of us. Uh, Jumbo Visma, I mean, that's that's an aberration of, of uh, or a continuation of Rabobank. So they'd probably be longer running than us. Um, let's see, when you get past that... Um, yeah, I mean, we're we're yeah, we're we're up there. I mean, as as one of the oldest teams. Which you know, the the thing is about that is for a European team, you know, let's say a Quick Step or you know a Jumbo Visma. Um, these things, I don't want to say they're easier, but like you know, those it's a, it's a regional nationalistic sponsor. It's a regional nationalistic team. It's from a country, you know, Belgium. Like cycling is the national sport of Belgium. Um, so, you know, they can, uh, they can draw upon that. Whereas an American team, you know, as you guys know, cycling is not really big in the American market. Uh, I can't, I can't draw on sort of a nationalistic pride for an American team. I have to, you have to invent your own identity and that makes the sponsorship, uh, search much more difficult. I mean, as, as you see, like with Kubeka, you know, South Africa, not a cycling country per se. He always had to rely on like a different storyline. And eventually that just didn't work. So, you know, we've had to be really creative to keep the team going uh, as long as we have. And you have definitely changed the name quite a bit. But let's talk about right now. Um, EF Education and Easy Post. Tell me a little bit about those two sponsors. Well, um, EF Education is, um, it, it's originally a Swedish company. 
that started out in the 1950s selling, uh, selling trips to England for Swedish kids that wanted to learn English. Um, the, the founder of it was dyslexic and he, he learned how to speak English, but he couldn't learn it in school. He could only learn it by just like learning it in person with like an English family or whatever. And so it, EF is a, an educates the world's largest private education company. And it's all about experiential learning, meaning we're going to put you in this situation. We're going to put you in a little bit of a sink or swim sort of social situation, and you're going to learn a language and you're going to learn a culture. Um, that's the big, broad overview of what that company is all about. Um, they are, you know, in 50 something different markets across the world, um, have, you know, around 50,000 employees around the world. So to them, uh, cycling, it, it's like sort of like, it's one of those, it's a privately held company, not publicly traded on the stock market. So it's sort of one of those, um, the largest company you've never heard of kind of things, right? And they, while they'd been extremely successful at, at direct sales, they said, you know, we, we need people to know who our brand is. And we need that in like 50 countries, not just, you know, really strong in the US, but nobody knows who we are in France or really strong in Italy, but nobody knows who we are in Canada, etc. They needed something that kind of shotgunned the whole thing and just created a brand for them and a strong brand identity. And uh, cycling represented a really efficient and economical way to get that done for them to just all of a sudden have a worldwide brand that's broadcast to all these different countries and and get brand recognition. So that's the story with um, with EF Education. It's it's a uh, you know, it's in, in a way, it's sort of like an ideal cycling sponsor that, that came into the sport purely, you know, for commercial reasons. There isn't the big cycling fan at EF, you know, that they're, they're doing it because they believe that they're getting great advertisement and brand value out of it. Easy Post is a company that does want to go public in the next you know, couple of years. Um, it is a shipping API, which basically means like if you're, say you're a... a medium size or a small size company that's shipping a ton of products around. You're not Amazon. You don't have the infrastructure, the shipping infrastructure of Amazon, but you need to ship out thousands of products every year and you need to do it in a way that's efficient. Well, Easy Post is essentially, uh, it, it's, a, it's an algorithm, a software that is going to pinpoint like trucks that have empty spaces, airplanes that have empty spaces, trains that have empty spaces, and get your package or a large number of packages to wherever they need to go in the fastest, least expensive way uh, possible. Basically looking for like, it's, it's like looking for like empty seats on an airplane. Instead, it's like empty, you know, empty pallets uh, shipping. And their uh, focus on this is, is pretty similar to EFs. It's like, if you notice, Easy Post sponsors um, UFC. They sponsor golf. They sponsor Formula One. And their, their take is, is we want people to know who we are so that they'll come and like, look at us. It's not necessarily like, oh, uh, you know, I have a small company. I want to ship with them. Maybe that works, but it's more like, oh, but wonder what this company is. Oh, take a look. Wow. Their financials are incredibly impressive. Like they're building a, a business that produces a massive amount of revenue with really low overhead and a low number of employees. Wow. When this company goes public, I want to buy their stock. And that's a little bit where, where EasyPost is looking at it as, uh, as we really want um, 
the investment world to know who we are and to take a hard look at our financials when we're ready to go public. And they feel like, you know, sports sponsorship is more effective at just getting that sort of back of back of mind, you know, branding and recognition of what that brand is than it would be to do traditional advertising. So, Jonathan, after being so much involved of finding a sponsor and every year, every second year, you have to find a new sponsor. What else is your job as general manager? How much do you get involved in the daily business? Do you plan the racing program as well or you trust your sport directors with that? How much do you design the jersey, the bike kits? Are you still involved in that? And what tire pressure do you use on what race? <laughs> what, 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 you know, how many cars the team needs? Are you still involved in that? What would be your day look in your life? Yeah, I mean, so the... Sh Short answer is yes and no, and that sort of I oversee that. You know, when when Charlie Regelius comes up with the roster for the Tour de France, he sends it to me and says, you know, is this approved and do you have any changes? But in essence, all of those um, operational, uh, race tactical um, equipment. All of those decisions are are left to the directors, and and in the way we divide it is is like for instance Charlie Bigelius is responsible for the race program, he's responsible for uh, selecting the rosters for the race program. Andreas Clear is responsible for like you said the tire pressures for the equipment choices for um, you know optimization of all the equipment, wind tunnel testing, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of how we have that partitioned out between those are our two lead directors, are Andreas Clear and, and Charlie Regelius. Um, the only part I uh, am directly hands-on involved with uh, as far as the sporting side of the team uh, is actually picking, you know, contracting the riders. And... The reason that has maintained with me as opposed to shifting it over to one of the directors is simply because, and, and you guys will relate to this, is that, you know, when you're on the road with uh, a director a lot, sometimes the director really likes you and sometimes the director doesn't like you. And what I've noticed over the years is that when a director develops a real close personal relationship with a rider, they never want to let them go, even if it's time for the rider to go. Conversely, if a director doesn't like a rider for one reason or another, even if they're winning races, they, they don't really want that guy to continue on the team, right? And so um, you, you have to have somebody that kind of is a little bit off to one side to just say, yeah, you know, like this guy fits or this guy doesn't fit or we need this guy, even if you don't like him, we do need him in the team. Or even though you really, really, really like this guy, it's, it's not going to work out going forward. So That's the one part of the team that, that I, I continue to be a part of. Also, the reason I continue to be, a, 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 you know, the point on, on that is that, um, you know, it's how, what riders I can choose to take in the team is completely dependent upon what the budget is, right? So if I know I'm bringing in this new sponsor that I know, okay, well, I can go out and, you know, go on to the transfer market and look for a big name rider. Or if I know that we're losing a sponsor, I say, Ugh, like, okay, this year, sorry, but, you know, all we're going to be able to bring on are like, you know, a couple of younger riders or, you know, lesser known riders. Well, I mean, you, you have a big team. You have 31 riders, and I want to talk about your development team and your women's team as well. But 31 riders on, on the World Tour team, 
20 nationalities and 11 different languages being spoken. Um, yeah. You know, back in the day, it was probably a little bit easier for you because there was a lot more Americans. And by my count, you only have, what, N Nielsen, um, Sean Quinn, and Alex Howes now. So what? where mm -hmm. are you looking for talent? Because we know, you know, you're, you're a Mensa-level intelligent person. And, you know, we, we were teammates together. We know how intelligent you are. I know that you look at the data. But, like, what would it take for a young rider, regardless where he is or she is in the world, to jump on your radar? Like, what, what is your net that you cast for, for finding new talent? Because you obviously are, are busy doing that. Yeah. So um, it has gotten a lot more difficult over the years, for sure. I mean, you know, when, when, when uh, we started out, you know, our first Tour de France in 2008, your, the roster was over 50% Americans. And we were really focused on, you know, having a lot of U.S. riders and, and in that market. So, like, when you're looking for talent, I was looking for the best talent in the U.S. Um, now, you know, our, our sponsors are more of the mentality of let's just find the best talent no matter what nationality is. We, we, it's like I would say we, we, we do not have a nationalistic preference one way or the other. We're, it, we're just, you know, if, if you're from Uruguay and you can ride a bike fast, great. You know, if you're from, um, you know, a traditional cycling country like France or Italy and you want to come to our team, great. Uh, so, so we're sort of looking anywhere and everywhere. You know, interestingly, 10 years ago, decade ago, uh, I would say most teams were they were focused on riders that were already professional. They were focused on talent that was sort of easy to identify, like, oh, you know, that guy won the Dauphiné. He seems to be pretty talented. Let's take him. You know, really simple choices. Um, they wanted riders, you know, Rabobank, we just used that example. They wanted riders um, from their home country, right? Um, we shifted away from that maybe a little bit earlier than most people did. But now I would say you're in a marketplace where everyone is looking for, you know, the hidden gem, right? Everyone is looking for the next Tade Pogachar, who comes from a small market country, um, who, who had a, a really solid junior and U23 career, but maybe wasn't the most superlative junior U23 out there, but then ended up being, you know, the incredible rider that he is today. So people are far more focused on that than, um, than they are, you know, looking at talent that sort of already exists and then transferring that across. If you look, most of the time, your prolific three-time, two-time, five-time Tour de France winners, they don't change teams in their career. Where they came on uh, and where they win their first Tour de France, that's pretty much where they stay most of their career. Miguel Indurain, you know, Bernard, you know, I guess he did change once. Um, you know, they, they're stuck. And Pogachar seems to be following that exact same path. Like, not that they're stuck. It's just that the key is sort of identifying the talent uh, to begin with preemptively and then developing it, which is a much harder road to go down because no matter what the data says, you know as well as I do that out of five great U23 or junior riders that I pick, four of them are going to end up being really mediocre. And it's only one of them that ends up being great. 
And then the additional challenge of like, well, you know, as we've seen in the past three weeks, which has been actually pretty painful for me to watch, you know, Sergio Higuita and Danny Martinez, both guys that I picked, you know, from when they were 20 years old and developed them in our program. And then, you know, we were not able to come up with the funds at the right time to keep them. And they've gone off and, and won two of the biggest, most important stage races in the world. And so then, you know, <laughs> so it's also, it's not, it's not just, you know, talent identification because it's like for sure Ineos is going to get a lot more out of Danny Martinez than I did because I was building Danny Martinez, you know, in his very early years as a pro and sort of teaching him how to be a top level professional rider. Now Ineos gets to sort of, you know, to, to, they get the d- dividends of that, and and that's hard, but that is the reality of a of a sport, you know, that isn't like the NFL that you know has a salary cap and a draft. So that's the reality of cycling is that you know the the wealthier teams are always going to be able to sort of pick the best talent. Then you know, in the case of like Pogacar, UAE can afford to retain the talent. They're not at risk of like somebody else paying Pogacar more because. You know, they can always beat the offer on that. I mean, that is just, you know, ask Uncle Uncle Oil for some more money, right? And, you know, so the, the, the your biggest teams can pick the best talent, they can retain the best talent, and they can also, you know, poach the best talent from smaller teams. So it's a it's a rough game. I mean, talent ID, talent retention, uh, you know, roster building, it's a you gotta be real scrappy. Where is he in uh, in the German soccer league, or uh, yeah, soccer, right? You call it football, football, soccer. Yeah, yeah There's yeah, a yeah. system that let's say you develop a player at 16 years old to 18 years old, and then the next team buys him. For yeah. at least five, maybe ten years, that bigger team has to pay certain amount of money to the team they got their talent from. There's a certain yeah. system, and it, it works quite like like a pyramid. You know, the the top. Yeah. Team at the top pays money to the next team. They got to pay that team underneath them because they got that player from there. Yeah. What do you think there would be an idea to have a system like that so that uh, the bigger teams somehow, if they still poach the talents, that they still have to pay the smaller budget teams to, to equalize it a little bit? Do you think there would be the need for something like that? Well, I mean, I, I think that's that's a very intelligent idea, especially in a sport, um, you know, like we have now where, where the money in cycling is, is purely from sponsorship. Um, so there's no there's no underlying revenue. Right. There, there's you know no ticket sales. There's no media rights revenue. So since it's a purely sponsorship driven revenue <clears throat> model, you know, the bigger the sponsor, the better the team. I mean, it, it's no. You know, it's no mystery that that Ineos and UAE have the you know the two biggest budgets in the sport, and then right after that, board. I mean, it's literally like the the team rankings pretty much follow the team budgets almost exactly, not exactly, but like pretty close. So, you know, this is so. What happens there is that you get to a point where you the smaller teams do risk, um, you know, kind of falling off the map because they don't have any underlying support, and there is a a fundamental. I mean, if you want to call it like a lack of financial fairness in that model. So what you're saying makes perfect sense. Um, I don't think that it will happen um, because 
And this is a decades old problem. And, and this was a problem when we were racing is that the teams in cycling uh, don't have great representation in the governance of the sport. I mean, um, I, I haven't, I haven't seen any sort of meaningful movement out of the AAGCP, which is the, the you know the team's union for a decade. Um, so it's it, it seems to me as if um, for one reason or another, and, and I and I don't really know why, but but you know the UCI it isn't really looking at, at a system like that, um, and prefer to just kind of keep it completely open. And, you know, that is always going to be that's going to be detrimental to fans because you're always going to have two or three teams that are really dominant because they're always going to be able to afford to be dominant. So that the races aren't as competitive as they could be if the talent was spread out more. So it's detrimental to fans. It's detrimental to, you know, audience numbers in the sport because the races aren't as exciting as they could be. And it's detrimental to the smaller teams, Um, you know, but I guess. I don't know, as, 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 as my grandpa always used to say, you, you know what the golden rule is? You know What's what it is, What's the golden yet? rule, Jonathan? Yes, help us the out. Golden rule is, the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules. That is so true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we could definitely go into the weeds here with a lot of that sort of stuff, but I really want to hear... Uh, about your new women's team, EF Education, TIBCO, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, we see a lot more teams, world tour teams, having a women's team. And I believe this is the first year that you have one. Is that correct? Correct, it is. So tell us, I mean, 31 riders on the world tour. Um, you have 14 women on the EF Education, TIBCO, Silicon Valley Bank team. Um, not to mention, you have a development team that hopefully we'll have you know some time to talk about. But man, like, how did how did this come about? And first of all, kudos to you and your entire organization for for supporting these women. But yeah, what are what is their race program, and how does that fit in to to basically how you've been running a team for the last twenty years? Well, you know, to first to start off with, um, the credit to the women's team, you know, needs to lie entirely with, with Linda Jackson. You know, she's, she's the GM there. She runs it. She's responsible, um, for Tibco and for Silicon Valley bank. Um, we had been looking as an organization, meaning EF and, and the, the background, uh, company behind the team, which is called Argyle Sports. <laughs> um, we'd been looking for an opportunity to, to enter women's cycling in a meaningful way for, for three or four years. It obviously got slowed down a little bit by the pandemic. Um, and our final analysis was we need to enter in a meaningful way with somebody who knows women's cycling. Um, and who has been in the women's cycling space for a while and not just kind of bull our way into the space and say, look at us, we're here. Um, and so we looked for a partnership um, with an existing women's team for quite some time. And what we found is that while I am not an expert in women's cycling and, and you know, neither I would say are my directors and, and our, our, a lot of our background organizations, one of the things that we do really well as a company uh, is, you know, is the marketing side of it. Marketing, 
social media, um, creating storylines, creating characters, creating arcs, creating, you know, creating good content. I know that's such an overused you know, content. Anyway, um, <laughs> so when uh, so we found um, the Tibco Silicon Valley bank team and thought, OK, like here's a team that's been around a really long time and could use some extra cash um, and could use a lot of help in, in making their riders, you know, more visible on the global market, making their organization uh, more marketable, more interesting, telling the stories of what they do behind the scenes better. And so what we do with them is, is more of it's a, it's a collaboration. Um, so if you ask me uh, their race program and the details of that, I, 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 you know, I know that even less than I know um, what Charlie Bigelius has in store for the Giro d'Italia. Um, but what I do know is that we, I think, have given that team, you know, a lot of sort of sparkle. And that as we move forward, um, that's going to only ramp up. Like as, as they're able to, with the extra, extra monetary support that they have now, they're going to be able to go on the transfer market and start, you know, getting some bigger name riders, some riders that win more often and developing young talent um, more successfully and retaining that talent. And then we'll have a great combination of, you know, a organization that's really set up to market and storytelling, creates, you know, create characters out of, um, you know, these women that actually have incredible stories. Like if you look at the, the organization they have, I mean, the stories of some of these women, it, it, I mean, bluntly speaking, they're far more interesting than than on the men's team. I, a lot of these women, you know, they had entire careers. Uh, we, we've got a woman on our team that, that she's a practicing physician. I mean, she's a doctor. She still is a doctor and she's racing bikes full time. Um, Lauren Stevens, who's the national champion of the U.S., she's a math teacher or was a math teacher. Um, and, you know, and part of our decision to come in was actually to make sure that the you know, the, the base wage of the women's team was exactly the same as the base wage of the men's team so that, you know, Lauren Stevens doesn't have to work a side gig as a math teacher and try to race bikes too. Like she is a full-time professional cyclist now. She is getting, you know, a commensurate wage to doing that job, um, which we all know is a pretty damn hard job. So those were the points that we came in and, and we felt like we could help. But, um, uh, in no way, shape, or form am I ever going to go to Linda Jackson and tell her how to to run her team because she's been doing it every bit as long as I have, and so she she knows she knows the game. So, Jonathan, now with the development team, the women's team, the men's team, how many people do you have on your payroll? Question one and question two: Do you ever all of them come together at the training camp? Do they all have the chance to once at least train together, meet each other? Or have have like dinner together? Maybe next year. Uh, this year we never came together because it's just you know, COVID and travel restrictions. And and is that even a good idea? Because the answer to your question is is well over two hundred people in total. Um, so is that a good idea to have a you know a big dinner buffet with two hundred people in January when you know Omicron was at its peak? <laughs> so uh, no, not yet. Um, but. Hopefully, in the next year, we will actually be able to to have an all team get together because I, I mean, you just made me I, I haven't even thought about that. 
because I've thought, well, that's just impossible. So I kind of push it out of my mind. But now that you mention that, I'm like, that's a, that's a pretty, that'd be a pretty neat event, right? You know, every, everyone from like a 12, well, not a 12 year old, but you know, but we have some pretty young riders, like a 17 year olds, you know, someone aspiring to be a professional all the way to, you know, a grumpy old guy like myself. Um, it's, yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, cross section and a lot of great knowledge could be, could be passed up and passed down. And we'll be right back after this short break. Well, let's, let's get back to more current stuff. Um, obviously, Perry Roubaix is coming up this weekend. And yeah. you know, I, I think I can speak for you um, and say that you, as well as myself, never raced Perry Roubaix. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, that is correct. Okay. Yeah. I didn't think so, but you, you never know. Maybe you got thrown in there at the last minute to, to yeah. fill in for somebody that got sick. But, you know, you've won this race. Your team with Johan Van Sommeren in, in, in 2011 won this race. So, yeah. you know, what are the preparations? I mean, you've been on the top step of the podium. Um, it's been a while. But what sort of extra, I guess, extra energy do you get from a race like Roubaix? You know, I'm only asking because I've never done it. I've never even been to the race, but like you who maybe never did it yourself, you were in the car or at least, you know, one of your riders wanted, but what, what makes Perry Roubaix so special? You know, so it, it is, it's, it's basically my favorite race, even though I've never done it. Um, and the funny thing is about that is that the year that we won, um, be, you know, just because of some crazy stuff that had happened to the team, I was actually the director in the car for that. So I'm the director having never raced it um, and, you know, not really knowing what the hell to say to the guys. Um, luckily for, you know, the first three quarters of the race, we had Andreas Clear, who is now my Roubaix director, who's, you know, for me, the most knowledgeable classics director in the world. I mean, he, he and, and people always say, oh, yeah, but what, are the, what about the Belgian guys and whatever? And all I'll say is, you know, I, I mean, Quickstep may have had better riders than us over the years for the classics, but but Andreas still, to me, remains the, the best classics director I've ever seen. He, um, you know, he, as a, as, a, as a rider, basically kind of like told me what to do. You know, he was riding for my team then. He told me what to tell the guys for three quarters of the race. But we get down to the tail end of the race and, you know, we've got Johan von Sumeren in the front group. And then we've got Tor Huzov in a group of three, which is Cancelara, Alessandro Belan and Tor coming up from behind. And, you know, all of a sudden the call is on me. Like, can Tor pull through or does he need to sit on? And do you trust that Van Summeren can get away with get away from because Van Summeren can't sprint at all, right? So can he get away from like the two or three guys that are still in the breakaway with him, or you know? And do I have Tor just sit on the wheel, or do I say no, no? It's better if the group of Tor comes up and then Tor can beat Consolar in the sprint or whatever, right? And I have to make that call, and I know nothing about Perry Roubaix. <laughs> like I, I mean, I've ridden on cobblestones, you know, all of like eight hundred meters in my entire career. And uh, all I say is I made the right call, but like, good God, I was sitting there just sweating. I'm like, man, if I get this wrong, 
like my Twitter feed, there will be no end to the negativity. It'll be like 10 years later, there'll still be people like, remember when you made that complete jackass call, you idiot, 10 years ago? Anyway, yeah, got lucky on that one. But it's my favorite race. I am going to that race. I fly out on, on Friday uh, to, to, to be there. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm just a cheerleader, but like, uh, I love that race. I mean, it's just, it, it plays out so dynamically and it is, it's so tactical because, you know, because it's flat. So like the, I mean, of course the, the you know, the best rider is going to win, but like you do get these winners like Johan van Sommer and, and like Matthew Heyman that are just these guys that everyone in the Peloton respects and have spent their entire life dragging other people up the side and crosswinds. And they get to win Paris-Roubaix once in a while. Whereas like Tour Flanders or Liege-Bastogne-Liege, you're never going to get a winner like that because it's got to be some guy that can go uphill fast. So you always have sort of the superstar winner. But Paris-Roubaix, it's a real hard man's race. You sometimes get a superstar winner. You sometimes get just a gritty hard guy. Hey, um, before I ask my question, I just pictured when you talked about you having to make the right call there, right? And you had Tor Hushoff there. I mean, after all, he's Thor, the god of thunder. He's a pretty big Viking. If you and, make and the he's wrong wearing call, the world champion jersey. Yes, and if you make the wrong call and Thor gets mad at you, I would run. I would straight run to the airport and fly out of the country <laughs> if Thor Hushoft is angry and chasing me. But um, it all worked out super well with Van Summer, right? and he deserved it. He was a nice, nice winner. But um, question about Roubaix, like a technical piece. Team DSM apparently is now, uh, they have a project or they allowed to alternate or to change the tire pressure electronically. Is that an innovation? Mm -hmm. You go, wow, this is awesome. Or you go, nah, that's the beginning of the end. You know, I mean, I think it's a really smart idea because the amount of time we spend fiddling with tire pressure for Paris-Roubaix, I mean, it's a lot. I mean, when Clear measures the tire pressure before the start of Roubaix, We, it's not only we calculate what the pressure is at the start, we calculate how much pressure it's going to lose over the six hours um, and, you know, where you want the pressure to be when they hit Carrefour de la which is, you know, the, the, the fourth to last sector. Um, so, you know, is it ideal riding on four bar uh, in the 100 kilometer you know, paved section before you get to the cobblestones. No way. I mean, you don't want to ride on these big, fat, you know, heavy tires at four bar, maybe even less than four bar sometimes. Um, it, but when you hit the cobbles, you need that. So uh, the ability to change tire pressure sounds great. And actually, we had looked at that technology a year ago and two years ago. And I would say that the, the technology that we were messing around with wasn't quite ready. Like it was more like the risk of the mechanism breaking during the race was so high that we said, oof, like, yeah, in a few years, this will be good, but not yet. And I would say maybe we're still a little bit in that camp. So it's, it's um, it, you know, looking at, at DSM, they're, I mean, they're going out and they're doing it and it might work great and it might not. I don't know. But eventually, that technology, if it works and it gets refined, eventually that technology will be far more useful than, you know, back when we were racing that people were trying to use shock absorbers on the, on the cobblestones, right? The, yeah, the tire pressure thing will be far more useful and will provide a real advantage once it's refined. I mean, we got dropper posts in road races, um, automatic... <laughs> 
tire pressure adjustment. I mean, the sport is changing. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of innovation out there that, you know, the UCI kind of gets in the way of, but, um, maybe this is a step in the right direction, you know, but, um, so, okay. You know, Peru Bay is over. Um, where, who is your prediction? Um, maybe we should do this in, in two segments. Cause I think you would be obligated to say one of your riders, but you know, you, you've been around the sport. It's your favorite race. You're going to be jumping from zone to zone. Who do you expect to be on the podium this year in Roubaix? Well, I mean, it's, it's always a hard call. I mean, from every observation the last couple of weeks, I mean, Matthew Vanderpool is the clear uh, favorite. Um, he does sometimes fade a little bit in like the last half hour, 45 minutes of really long races. So we'll see. He didn't in Flanders. So, um, but that does seem to be his one weak point occasionally. Um, beyond that, uh, one thing I would look for is that Quick Step um, has not won uh, any of the races that their sponsor would absolutely be demanding that they win. Um, so a lot of times quick step, you could see it that like, if they won Flanders, they would show up to Roubaix, well, let's just call it a little hungover. Right. I mean, like they definitely had a couple of fun days after Flanders and then, and then they're like, yeah, okay, if we can put it together for Roubaix, we will. But it was a tiny bit of an afterthought if they won Flanders this year, there, there was no going, you know, going to the beer garden after Flanders. So I think quick step as a whole is going to be taking this much more seriously. So Askren being, you know, their most likely candidate, um, you know, to, to, to really push it there. But I think, I think they will be on point as a team in a way that they haven't been, uh, so far in the classics beyond that. Oh, then, then, then it gets more muddy, you know, then at that point in time, there are a lot of people that, that, pop up kind of out of nowhere for Roubaix and, and you, and I, I don't, I don't know that I'll be able to make like a fair prediction beyond sort of those two, those two bets. Um, it's a different race, different race than the other classics. I have to do a prediction for Eurosport because I'll be commentating and my prediction will be Mats Pedersen winning. That's also a Great call. I mean, because he's obviously because he's such a big guy, he's handicapped a little bit on the short climbs. But in Roubaix, he's not. He's not going to be handicapped at all. Now, I don't know what his best Roubaix finish has been so far. It's a funny, you know, Roubaix is one of these funny races that some guys, and you know this, like you, you sometimes you see like a really big guy. And he's super strong, and you think, oh well, you know, if uh, and, uh, and and let's, I mean, here's an example: Filippo Ganna, right? Filippo Ganna, hell, he could run away with the whole thing. But as of right now, I mean, I was reading this article this morning about how he's doing like intervals for for Paris Roubaix on the track in in Italy, and I'm thinking you know, he's doing it on like a points race bike, and thinking, well, that might work, and it might not. Some people can pedal on the stones, on the big stones on a flat road. And some people, they can't pedal on it. I don't know what the difference is, but if you look, there are certain riders that are super efficient at pedaling on the stones. And then the other riders that like, no matter how strong they are, they're just a little bit too stiff. Um, and they don't pedal on the stones. 
So I so to me, Mads Pedersen was almost fit a little bit in that. Like for sure on paper, he'll be one of the guys to win the race without a doubt. I don't know if he's like one of these guys that can kind of magically float on top of the stones or not. Guess we'll find out. Yeah, I I, I have to agree with you there, Jonathan. I mean, Peru Bay, my uh, my favorite race. It's going to be awesome. Uh, do you have any idea what the, what the weather looks like for the, for the weekend? And right now it's looking sunny and dry. It's supposed to rain, I think, on Wednesday, but that'll be dried up by Sunday. So I don't I don't think we'll get the and it's supposed to be head crosswind, which if you you know again you guys know that that's uh, never quite as exciting as tail crosswind. <laughs> So, Jonathan, then you have on Saturday your women's team participating as well. Yeah. What are your hopes? Yep. Uh, what are your hopes there? You have anybody who is able to run the top ten, or? Well, the, you know, the women's team. I don't think we don't have any real, true, like Roubaix specialists. Um, you know, so a top ten would be a very impressive result on on their part. I mean, bluntly speaking. With our men's team, I think a top 10, you know, I, I have some hopes for Jonas Ruch and for Sebastian Langeveld, but, you know, we've had the worst spring classic season I have ever seen in terms of, I mean, we've had, you know, multiple COVID cases and then multiple COVID cases that like after they got over COVID, they you know, had a secondary infection afterwards and or they got the flu and then a cold and then it turned into a sinus infection. And I mean, anyway, it's it's uh, it's been a, you know, it's been the most challenging spring from a performance standpoint and a health standpoint that I have ever I mean, I've ever seen in in, in all of my years doing this. Um, Bobby, you know, you were talking about you've got 31 riders on the team. There are many races this spring we have not been able to even feel the full team. We've had so many people down with various illnesses, and and uh, woof, man, that's that has not been fun to deal with at all. Yeah, it, you know, it's called the mysterious illness of the peloton, and uh, you can't really put a finger on anything because the numerous guys that I've spoken to, they all have different symptoms, and and I just hope that. You know, they all get better soon, but I can imagine trying to put a team together, especially with multiple uh, programs going at the same time. You know, you don't want to send a guy to a race just to sign in the sign-in sheet and then go home. Um, so hopefully, yeah. Yeah. hopefully that can sort out. So, so after the classics, um, you you said that it's been a very difficult uh, classic season for you so far. But the best thing about cycling, Jonathan, is there's always another race. You know, put this <laughs> yeah, in yeah, the rearview mirror. Let's talk about the summer. What 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 do you see um, how the the summer is going to take shape for your team? Uh, let, let's you know, Giro Tour kind of cliff notes of of what you expect from your team at those races. Because let's let's face it. I mean, Rigoberto Arren, one of the coolest most calm cats I've ever met. I think he's your age, isn't he? Is he? Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, JB, yeah, yeah, you, you can step back yeah, in. He's old. You can step back <laughs> in. You old. never know. But like, you know, he, he's, he's getting older. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Mark Padun, which is, you know, another story in its own. Um, the mental state of this kid with what's going on in the Ukraine, I, I just... Could, could can't even fathom, but um, yeah, yeah. Like, what 
what what do you have in store? What's the master plan to um, save the the 2022 season heading into the summer? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not totally clear yet because we have to get guys healthy first. I mean, that's the first and foremost uh, issue. So once that happens, because the thing is, is you know, everything has a knock-on effect. I'll give you an example. Magnus Cork, right? So Magnus Cork broke his collarbone. And so he missed all of the classics. Um, okay, so then, well, what do you do with him now? He's starting to train again. Do you, you know, where where does he fit in? He's, he's a, a guy that can win from a breakaway. He's a guy that can sprint from a small group. You know, do you send him to... Tour of Romandy, hoping that there'll be some small group sprints, and then maybe Tour de Suisse or Dauphiné, hoping there's small group sprints. Or do you send him to like the first two weeks of the Giro d'Italia, you know, right off a broken collarbone and, and hope that he can sort of pick up a win somewhere in the Giro, and then send him home early out of the Giro, and then send him to the Tour. I mean, it's a, it's a, the, my point is, is that his season all of a sudden became something that it never was supposed to be, right? His, his season was supposed to be. Win a couple races in February. Okay, he did that. Then, you know, maybe win a stage at Perry Nice. He's always done that in the past. Wasn't able to do that this year because he crashed, broke his collarbone, and then go to the classics and, you know, be in the hunt at Milan San Remo or one of the other classics, right? It's all off the table. You know, just throw it out the window. So now you're like, okay, other than the Tour de France, what, like, what do we do with this guy between now and the Tour de France? And I could I could list 10 guys like that. Like Hugh Carthy has been sick over and over again this spring. Well, is he going to be ready for the Giro? I don't know. Maybe. And if he isn't, well, you know, do I send him to the Tour and like knock somebody else out that was supposed to be going to the tour or do I just have him focus on like tour de Swiss and say the Vuelta is your objective for the year. And I could give you 20 of those, you know, where it's, it, so all I can say is this, is that one thing that has remained fixed in everyone's head is that Stefan Biziger is seems to be getting healthy again. And that's a great sign. Um, we are confident, especially after UAE, where he beat Filippo Ghana with a pretty good margin uh, in the pan-flat time trial in UAE Tour, um, that the time trial at the start of the Tour de France is a similar distance, um, no elevation gain, actually has more corners in it, which suits Stefan, because Stefan doesn't know where the brakes are on his bike. Um and so one of our big projects is basically just optimizing every last little detail with that guy down to like, you know, I mean, you just, just wait till you see the shoes he's going to have at the start of the Tour de France. So I, I won't say anything more than that, but just look at his shoes at the start of the Tour de France. And it, it's like, we just, we're just calling it Project Yellow Jersey. Like, can we beat Filippo Ghana? You know, and, and people say, oh, Filippo Ghana is the best time trial. Zone. Yeah, you know what? Uh, hey, he's world champion. He's definitely got more horsepower than Stefan does, but that doesn't mean that we can't sit and like grind away at all kinds of stupid little nerdy details to see if we can just scrape out that little thing that Ghana and the Ineos team overlooked because, you know, because they were confident and we were the underdogs. I, I think we can do it. So like you want to, you want to, where do we turn it around? We get the yellow jersey in the first day of the Tour de France. That's where we turn it around. Fantastic. So Jonathan. Oh, you gave us 15 minutes of your time. I give you an easy question to, 
you know, calm down after like talking about, you know, this jigsaw puzzle of riders being sick, crashing, putting them back into business. What do you do at the end of the day? What do you do after all that? You go fishing, you do some painting yourself. What do you do to keep your mind off, to find some peace for your own mind? Um, what's your interest? So, I mean, you guys both know that I love fishing. So I, I, I go fishing all the time. I'm happy to send you tons of pictures. Um, I try to break my deadlift record. Uh, that, and then, um, and this is a part that, that most people don't know about me. I'm, I'm actually an obsessive art collector um, of, um, you know, of, of early American modernism is what it technically is, but a lot of people would refer to it as Western art or, or Tao's founders art, but I'm, I'm an, a, a quite obsessive art collector. Um, so I spend quite a bit of time working on my collection, uh, looking at auctions, um, seeing, you know, what's coming up and w whether or not, uh, you know, it's something I want to bid on or not in, in auctions. Um, so I do a lot of that. I do a lot of fishing and, and a lot of weightlifting, bruh. Fantastic. You look buff. Look at these guns, my friend. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So uh, fishing, fly fishing or uh, you go for whatever, a uh, pike um, with um, or you go fly fishing and I do all, all of, of it. it. I, I do. I mean, I, I love fly fishing. I love deep sea fishing. I love fly fishing in the, the sea. I mean, I, like if there's a if there's a fish, I will try to catch it. I mean, it, it's like any part of the world. I've, now I've been fishing in Sweden. I've been fishing in Holland. Um, I've, you know, I've been fishing in Mexico. I've been fishing in, in Hawaii and my son, you know, who's, who's in the Marine Corps, he's based in Hawaii. So every single time, uh, I go visit him when he has a little period where he's off duty, we, we go fishing in Hawaii. Um, yeah, I just, I mean, I, I love fishing. So <laughs> that's a nice, man. Thing. I wish I had a, uh, you know, story like yours, but you know, since we retired, I can say we all of a sudden. I have a gravel bike. I have a new mountain bike. I actually did my first ever mountain bike race today, the Pisgah. But you mountain... never did like a mountain bike race back when we were kids, like when we were 17 or something? No. Uh, and if I did, I, really? I don't remember. Um, again. <laughs> I mean, I know you did cyclocross because you always lapped me like three times in cyclocross. Yeah, cyclocross. But like they keep making all these new cool bikes. So I'm not getting bored. You know, I switch it from the road bike to riding Zwift to the gravel mountain bike but uh i'm i'm perfectly happy but man you keep doing what you're doing you need to let the air out of the balloon every once in a while but jonathan it has been a pleasure having you on bobby and jens today take care get the boys healthy and you know tomorrow's another day all the best with the remaining part of the 2022 season All right. Well, thank you very much. And we will, we will need that luck. So thank you for giving it to me. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Jonathan Vodders for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne. And this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Next week, we have a part two episode with Spartacus, Mr. Fabian Conchalera himself, who's coming back on the podcast. So if you have any questions for him, ask away. So please send your questions to us on Twitter and Instagram 
at Bobby and Jens, and we will make sure that Fabian is going to answer your question. Thank you.